he's 56 years. I've never experienced anything quite like uh, the Azmat Kuwaiti in Arabic in 1990-91, uh, uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Um, people refer to it as the first Gulf War. No, it was not. It was the second one, and it was the shortest of the three. The first one was 1982-88, the Iran-Iraq War, one of the longest in the 20th century. Uh, the more third one was the one in 2003, for which we're still paying the price to contra consequences. Uh, so uh, the uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm was the shortest of the three. On the other hand, it was the uh, most effective, most uh, brilliantly uh, conceived and executed and administered of the three by far. There's no comparison. Uh, the contrast could not be, be starker there. Uh, what do I speak in this regard? Uh, not just the 34 nations that were cobbled together in the international and concerted action uh, required to uh, reverse Iraq's aggression uh, against Kuwait. Uh, not only that, that in itself was a feat that has not been uh, uh, rivaled, let alone surpassed or equaled just since. Um, but what happened to Kuwait on August the 2nd of 1990 was that uh, its national sovereignty was smashed to smithereens. Its uh, political independence was smashed to smithereens. Its territorial integrity was smashed to smithereens. Uh, the people of Kuwait lost their security, lost their safety, lost their dignity. What Desert Shield and Desert Storm did was to reverse all of that. It restored Kuwait's <coughs> national sovereignty, restored Kuwait's political independence, it restored Kuwait's territorial integrity, <coughs> and it returned to the Kuwaiti people their safety and their security. Uh, ponder how relevant this is to the goals for which every government is constructed informed and administered. Uh, read the U.S. Constitution and the four main obligations are to protect people's domestic safety, the uh, uh, external defense, uh, the material well-being, and the ongoing administration of the civil system of justice. All four of those were taken off the map when Iraq did to Kuwait what it did to Kuwait. <coughs> All four of those uh, were restored. There's been nothing like it before in my mind, in memory, and nothing like it since. A combination of political brilliance, dedication, and experience and preparation on one hand, and the formation and execution of military preparedness uh, with some of the finest of the finest of the finest in the land on, on the other, representatives of which we have here today. We have both the political and the geopolitical and the diplomatic uh, here in front of you, and we have the armed forces component also, and we have the veterans uh, commitment, as well as the congressional element of it. And Congressman Phil Rowe of Tennessee, uh, people uh, criticize Congress often rightly for uh, being in gridlock, not, not getting enough things done, but get things done, it does. And one of the things that Congressman Rowe was able to do five years ago <coughs> was to work uh, to get the congressional authorization for a Desert Shield, uh, Desert Storm uh, Memorial. <coughs> and more recently, in the past year, he's uh, secured additionally the congressional authorization for the site, 
which will be in the near the corner of 23rd Street and Constitution Avenues between the World War II Memorial and the uh, Korean and Vietnam Memorials. This will be a fitting tribute, uh, not just to the 383 uh, Americans <coughs> who lost their lives and those uh, from allied, friendly, strategic partner countries as well. Uh, it says nothing about uh, the Iraqi people who suffered uh, as a consequence of this ill-fated blunder on the part of its then president. Nor does it say anything about the sanctions that were kicked in <coughs> that uh, wreaked and ruined on the uh, humane needs of uh, millions of Iraqis. Nor the setting stage uh, for 2003, uh, where the United States uh, illegally invaded uh, Iraq, and in terms of the UN Secretary General's uh, uh, analysis and comments that it was illegal, and creating two million Iraqi external refugees, two million internally displaced Iraqis, untold hundreds of thousands of Iraqis killed and maimed and widowed and, and wounded, and alienating and provoking and antagonizing unnecessarily and millions more throughout the region, a price for which we're paying to this day. Uh, but just as human desert storm was the rainbow between these three uh, uh, international wars and conflicts, and it was one that is a textbook case of what can be done in terms of upholding international law, of having morally principled uh, leadership, of having the experience and the education uh, to couple together a coalition of almost three dozen countries. Uh, people do not know that there were two dozen more that signed up, so to speak. It said, uh, our parliament says, yes, we can go too. But this would have been the traffic jam of the devout if you had 54 uh, <laughs> nations, armed forces uh, deployed and mobilized and camped out in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. Uh, so keep this in context and your perspective. Uh, this was no small moment in world history and regional history and American-Arab uh, relations. Uh, I want to commend the congressman uh, for this extraordinary feat. All of you who work with Congress know how difficult Congressman Rowe, his representative John Witherspoon is here, and we would like to uh, present to the Congressman the National Council's Distinguished Public Service Award and uh, have the pleasure and the honor and privilege of Mr. Witherspoon uh, receiving it on behalf of Congressman Rowe. is the individual who conceived and dreamed and worked with others uh, here uh, to bring us to this point and to carry us uh, beyond. Uh, he himself is uh, an infantry man, formerly served with the United States Marine Corps, was in a support operational role during Desert Shield and Desert Storm. He's been a multi-year <coughs> member of, the, uh, of AMFETS and the American Legion 
and the veterans of uh, foreign wars. Uh, it takes a visionary, it takes a leader, it takes a person who uh, is endowed with uh, strategical and tactical gifts, talents, and sense uh, to bring something like this about. It's arduous, more than arduous and difficult and taxing, uh, but he's brought us this far, and his name is Scott Stump. We want to present him a award, award as well in acknowledgement of what he's achieved.
a lot of effort, a lot of courage, and especially commitment over a long time to get legislation through. And had he not done so, we wouldn't be here today, or anywhere near where we are today. So we have to be very, very appreciative of his commitment. Um, well, I guess what I would want to just share with you at this moment is Many of you were participants uh, involved or engaged in some different ways back uh, 28 years ago. So the memories come back very easily to you, as they do to me as well. And what I would say, to add to what we saw in the video, that this particular time was, in fact, really a, a beacon moment for America. It was a beacon moment for the, for the country that stood up for what we believed in, what our ideals stood for, as the president was seen saying, uh, for against aggression. It was a, a beacon moment for the U.S. military, all branches of the U.S. military. Uh, if you stop and think about the history of our country over the last several decades, there was a, a very tragic war in Southeast Asia that left us all feeling uh, very emotional, really, about our engagement, our withdrawal, our consequences. It was a very difficult time in America for our military. Uh, and if you stop and think where we are today, the crises around the world that seem interminable, that seem to be becoming more complicated every morning when you get up, and that has our military engaged in wars that link the historic, think of Afghanistan, so when you stop and think about this particular moment that we're commemorating today, it, it was indeed a beacon of, of light and a moment of time when we had a leadership that focused on what was really important, kept that focus on a, on a, a leadership that gave the military the ability and the capability to do what it needed to do to accomplish the goals, and that was to remove Saddam Hussein and his troops from, from Kuwait and to restore Kuwait independence. I would just tell you that for me, it's a very emotional moment and experience to always think about. Because for me, this was an issue of people. Under the occupation, we were hearing daily about the problems, I should say the atrocities, that were undergoing inside Kuwait for Kuwaiti people who were trapped. And so when I got into Kuwait, thanks to the military and their great efforts, um, the streets were full of Kuwaitis and people on their, and their vehicles with American flags, Kuwaiti flags, the flags of the coalition, shouting gleefully and happy. And I'm just going to share one anecdote, because I'm getting anecdotes with all we here for dinner tonight, which you're not paying for, are you? <laughs> so in any case, um, uh, at one point in time, uh, I got asked, to be interviewed by Barbara Walters for Good Morning America. And I'm standing on the rooftop of a destroyed hotel, but the roof is still there, with the cameras panned to me and behind me the famous water towers, right? And she started saying, she said, thank you, Mr. Ambassador, for being with me this morning. She said, before I ask you a question, I want to just read some of the headlines that are here in the American press so you have an idea of what we're, we're dealing with. And she started reading one. And said, oh, she said, uh, the uh, people of Kuwait remain under despots, and 
and, and even though they've been liberated from one, and then he went to another one, and she said, you know, there's a terrible sort of situation uh, inside Kuwait today, and I had a, a speech course once that said, if you're being interviewed, be careful that the interviewer doesn't take away all of your three minutes. So I said, Barbara, Barbara, and she said, uh, yes, yes, sir, and I turned deliberately, melodramatically, and I looked out, and I said, I'm standing in a country that's liberated. You can hear the honking, you can hear the shouting, the sun is bright, the sky is great. Are we talking about the same country? <laughs> silence. Baker called me just a little bit after that and said, I never heard Barbara Walters speechless, but she did. <laughs> but, but the truth of the matter is this was a people's moment. And this was a, a moment in which Kuwaitis up to this day, believe you me, and I was there just earlier this year, will still tell you how much America did for them. They still host American troops in their homes as they did in those first few days when there wasn't much in the way of food to offer. And so what I would just say to, to all of you, that for us, the challenge that we face today is in fact the passage of time. It's been 28 years. I teach. None of my students were alive in 1991. Telling them what happened, reminding, and this is true in Kuwait as well, the same challenge to make sure that people don't forget that when there is this kind of aggression, we respond internationally with a great deal of support that we can do it, and we have done it, and we can do it again if we had to, but we want people to walk down this mall. And I'm talking about Americans, I'm talking about our grand military, I'm talking about visitors from all over the world to see a memorial that says, we, the world, did what was right at a very important moment in time. And we can't do it without your support. And this means your public support, and I'm going to go ahead and say it, financial support and, and organization. So thank you again. I've spoken far more than I would allocate the time. But I love you all, and this is a great moment for us to soar. Thank you, Skip, Ambassador. Good evening. Uh, we're fortunate indeed to have had such public service uh, to devote uh, the better part of four decades uh, being on the front lines of American uh, diplomatic challenges and needs and concerns in interest in pursuit of the key U.S. foreign policy objectives there. Uh, in the audience we have uh, uh, General Paul Schwartz, uh, who was very much involved in these matters as well, uh, but is more of an unsung hero.
And uh, had it rolled forward, uh, a disaster of uh, unforeseen, unenvisioned, unimaginable consequences would have occurred. Uh, there was a member of Congress in a room like this uh, some days, some months before uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait, and someone asked him, uh, the armed forces officer from uh, U.S. Central Command, I believe at that time, or advisor to it. Uh, General, how long would it take if uh, Iraq were to invade Kuwait one day? How long would it take to roll through Saudi Arabia and pass Bahrain and down to, to Qatar uh, in terms of uh, what would be at risk for the world's uh, energy industry? And he shot from the hip there and said, uh, 100 days, 100 days. And 
Meanwhile, the cabinet was there, and they asked the dumbest questions I've ever heard in my life. I'm sitting there, yeah, okay. So finally, the president never said a word. He just sat there and let them ask their questions. And it turned out what they were doing, they were asking all the questions that the press was going to ask the president. And they were, of course, still dumb questions, but nonetheless, the press loved it. So uh, after that got all done, we talked about what we could do. Uh, President Bush turned and he did something that really made me proud. First of all, he said, uh, he just said, I want you to try and limit the loss of life. And I thought if we have to go to military operations to get out of Kuwait. And I thought he meant American lives. And then I said, no, he's, he's talking about friends to coalition. And I said, he's talking about Iraqi lives. And to those of us who were in Vietnam, the major American in Vietnam was dead people. And to me, that was obscene. And so suddenly here, I had a president who I could look up to as a military guy because he understood the ugliness and horror of war. Then he started talking about a coalition. And he had uh, something else. He was asking what different people think. He says, I know what Margaret Thatcher thinks because I was just with her in Aspen. And he says, I'm going to call Mitterrand this afternoon. I'll know what the French think. But he says, the person most directly involved now that Kuwait has fallen is Saudi Arabia. And he says, I need to know what the king of Saudi Arabia thinks we ought to do. Now, there's a first for Americans. Because yeah, we always, you know, they're often wrong, never in doubt. That's us. Oh, <laughs> 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 so. And uh, so he asked Cheney, he said, Dick, would you fly to uh, Jeddah and talk to the king and see what he thinks we ought to do? Now, that made me feel doubly great because in Vietnam, we walked in and said, uh, we're Americans, we're going to save your country. Uh, would you boys just sort of fellows stand over here? We're gonna, of course, the capital of that country is now Ho Chi Minh City. So uh, that was bad. Uh, so that was really good. And those, so he gave us a goal that was achievable using military force, first and foremost. He told us to try and limit the loss of life, and he said, work as a coalition. And what we did, I went, when we went forward and briefed King Fahd, then Schwarzkopf and Cheney came back to the States, left me in charge. 27 Iraqi divisions on the border at that time, and two Saudi National Guard armored car companies defending the border. I said, if they come south, Schwarzkopf's the most brilliant general I've ever met, because Horner's the one that's going to be a POW. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what we decided is we needed a counterpart. We did not want the Americans to be in charge. So fortunately, there was an out-of-work general at the time named Prince Khalid bin Sultan, and he was the Air Defense Commander, but the Air Defense comes under the Saudi Air Force in time of war, which is as it should be. And uh, so uh, somehow we got it worked. Then it was an arduous process, but uh, Prince Khalid became Schwarzkopf's counterpart. Now most of the people in this country don't appreciate that because they don't know about it because we Americans talk about themselves all the time. But it was fundamental to our success that Americans, they don't mind, people won't mind the Americans leading because we bring a lot of stuff. But they don't want us to act like we're in charge. And so we did. And Prince Khaled provided a perfect balance for that. And it really paid off in spades. 
So what I'm looking for is a memorial for the next president that thinks he wants to unleash the dogs of war can go to and learn, and learn the importance of having a political goal that's militarily achievable, and learn that America isn't always right. America may be good, but they're not always right. And who understand that the war involves ugly things, the loss of life, terrible things happen to people inadvertently without design. And so you have to be deep in your convictions in order to unleash the dogs of war. And I hope that this memorial does that. For me, it's personal. I went to war twice in Vietnam. I flew over North Vietnam in F-105. We lost more 105 pilots over North Vietnam than the entire casualty list in Desert Storm on all sides, on, on all the friendly sides. So I swear I never want to see what we did in Vietnam occur again. And that, to me, is the reason this memorial needs to be supported and built and maintained. So thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you, General Hon. People don't uh, ordinarily expect uh, these kinds of uh, remarks in uh, backgrounds and contexts and perspectives uh, on uh, conflicts that involve <coughs> armed forces. Um, we were lucky to have General Horner where he was, uh, and when he was where he was. Um, and the word right comes uh, to mind. Yes, indeed, we're, we're often wrong. Uh, but this case, uh, without being intentionally uh, dramatic, was one, I think, where uh, the United States, with its 34 coalition partners, did most of the right things, for the most part, at the right time, and for the most part, in the right way, and for the most part, for the right reasons and for the most part, the right people and the right objectives and as a consequence, the right results. Um, not by accident, not by coincidence, but by uh, teamwork and they uh, putting shoulders to the wheel uh, by the likes of General Horner, Schwarzkopf, quite um, a few others who are unnamed, uh, but uh, <coughs> Scott, Stump uh, knows of them, if not knows them, not all are with us, either physically in this room or on this earth anymore. Um, but in the rearview mirror, this is something to behold, uh, to respect, to honor, to be privileged, uh, to be part of, and as General Horner said, to learn from. And let's hope we don't have the nightmares of any of these three wars, let alone the one in Southeast Asia, 58,000 uh, names uh, on the plaques in uh, the mall, uh, no names of the 1.3 million Vietnamese who lost their lives. And uh, this is a shortcoming on our side. We're, we're rightly uh, accused of being empathy deficit 
of an inability to project ourselves into the shoes or situations of others who are affected by our actions, by our policies, by our positions, by our attitudes. Uh, so this helps to round out uh, the context, the background, and provide some perspective. I'll turn it over now to Scott Stump, who's the president of the Desert Shield, Desert Storm National Memorial. Texas. This is November of 2010, 
and in January was the 20th anniversary. Gosh, it seems like yesterday, now it's 28. Um, but I was going to attend that, and it dawned on me that my children, who at the time were probably seven, eight, maybe nine years old, uh, my son and my daughter, didn't know anything about this other than daddy's got a box of a bunch of funny looking uniforms and some sand and some jars down there that I wasn't supposed to bring home, by the way. Uh, but, you know, what is that all about? And I really realized that Americans fall into one of three categories, or did, when it came to operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Those that thought, oh, well, I don't have any recollection, I wasn't born, I don't know anything about it. The second group, oh, that's that hundred hour war. And I dare anybody out on the street to tell General Chuck Horner that it was a 100-hour war. There was 43 days of intense uh, air combat. So it was that 100-hour war, video game war, nobody died, and you know it's just a speed bump in history. The other group tends to conflate it with the post-9-11 actions. Well, this is Act 1 of what happened subsequent to 9-11. All three are absolutely you know, wrong and erroneous. And we know that the entire objective, that mission, the singular mission, was to liberate the people of Kuwait, period. It wasn't to depose dictators. It wasn't to invade countries. There was a UN mandate, and we've heard time and time again, this was actually the one time where the UN worked like it was supposed to. I mean, it's amazing what happens when you follow those resolutions. You know, as Secretary Baker is always keen to mention to me, you know, we built international consensus. We built domestic consensus, we had a clearly objective, uh, clear, clearly defined objective, we went in, we did it, and we got the heck home. And I've also had some people say, well, this memorial is important too because, you know, it's the, um, it's not the forgotten war, it's the forgotten victory. And it's a victory on many levels, as General Horner spoke of. It's not just a military victory, it's a victory for the, doing the right thing. Uh, and it sets so many presidents. So, that was my impetus. Of course, I had no idea what I was doing, just an average American, but I did know that anything you want to do has to go through this place that we're in you know, right here. Uh, so I reached out to a mutual friend of Dr. Rose and, and myself, a guy named Jeff Miller, who Jeff is the co-founder of Honor Flight, where they fly the World War II and the Korean veterans up here. I said, Jeff, I'm not all that hepped up on my uh, our representative. He lives 40 miles away from me. Who can I reach out to? He said, man, you got to talk to my friend, uh, Phil Rowe. you got to talk to him. Had a conversation with Dr. Rowe. I said, Dr. Rowe, here's what I'm doing. You know, what do you think? And he didn't say, well, let me get back to you. Let me go talk to my 23-year-old staffer and see what they say. No, no offense. He said, without, without flinching, he said, Scott, this is important. Let's do it. I'm on board. And he was there. And I just wanted to point out, too, and John, thank you for representing Dr. Rowe. We had, a mile, we had a milestone anniversary two days ago on the 28th of May of 2014. The enabling legislation was voted on and passed right next door here in that pretty white building, uh, 370 to zero. So we, we had a, a unanimous... Um, now we had, a few, we had a few complications involving a spending bill. I won't go into that in the Senate. But uh, nonetheless, it was passed into law on December 19th of 2014. Once that happened, then we started down two tracks. One was for the Area 1 um, approval. And Area 1 is basically, if you look at, and I hate to use this analogy, but it's like a bullseye. 
uh, Washington, D.C. is a bullseye. The inner ring or the bullseye, I'm sorry, a target. The inner bullseye is Area 1. It's the location closest to the very important and historical commemorative works. Uh, we are fortunate to get approval for that uh, in March of 2017. John, is that right? Yeah, March. Okay. I always get these dates. Got so many things going on. But March of 2017, and we were also involved in the site selection process. Ladies and gentlemen, we took the tact that this, the location was of paramount importance. We really weren't interested in telling this story and constructing the Taj Mahal somewhere where nobody would go to learn about this. We felt that it was very important that people and future generations need to know this story. It's not a speed bump in history. Uh, it is important. And we fought through a process that's normally supposed to take 18 months. It took us three and one-half years. And last June 21st, 20, June 21st of 2018, we finally were approved for the location right in the backdrop of the Lincoln Memorial. It's near uh, Vietnam, and, and General Horner uh, can speak to the Vietnam connection so much more than I can because I didn't serve there. Uh, but I can tell you, I do have a cousin whose name is on the Vietnam Wall. And um, this is every bit, and those that did serve and who died are every bit as important as him. So that was a battle um, that we are so happy that we uh, you know, were able to achieve uh, victory in. And now we're moving ahead in two tracks. Okay? It's the fundraising and it's the design. And we've got some outstanding design folks that are at work, uh, that 30-year you know, veterans in their industries, landscape architecture, architecture. They're doing a marvelous job. Okay, and a number of those are even working, um, you know, donating their services. So this is truly a grassroots effort, and we are very proud to, you know, to get to this point because, as General Horner said, uh, I felt early on that, you know, what this wasn't was just as important as what it was. This was not something that, I mean, if you, if you remember back to the, those of you that have a long enough of a memory, what did you hear about the predictions for Desert Storm? Oh, man, these guys are eight, they're battle-hardened. They had eight years of war with Iran. We're just a bunch of volunteers. First all-volunteer force. We're going to be no match for these people. You can't fight in the desert. You know, we don't know anything about desert warfare since we fought Rommel in North Africa. You know, we have all of these dire predictions. Tens of thousands of casualties. Never came to pass. So, you know, this is just so important, and that coalition element is something that's going to be highlighted in this memorial. The coalition members are going to be represented, and we're very excited, I'm very excited, knowing that 50, 100 years from now, people not just from this country, but maybe they're coming from Kuwait, maybe they're coming from Saudi Arabia, maybe they're coming from the UAE, maybe they're coming from England. We've got a group over there that's trying to help us, too, uh, and learn this story and draw inspiration and say, you know what, if they could pull together 34 countries from five different con continents, different languages, different religions, everybody may look different, come together and do the right thing, gosh, anything is achievable. And if anybody doesn't think that that is a remarkable feat, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this because of where I am, take a look at today's environment. We can't even get 34 senators across the street in the same room to agree on anything, let alone do something constructive. This was amazing, folks. It was absolutely amazing, and this story cannot be lost. It was so much more than a, a speed bump in history. And I'm proud to report to you that it won't be because of that location and the way that we're going to tell the story. Uh, it's going to be remarkable.
and it's going to be wonderful for these future generations to learn this story. Now, just uh, in closing, the goal, we want to have this uh, completed uh, in 2021, uh, hopefully on Veterans Day. Uh, and I hate to say this, General Horner, you might, uh, you might hate it even worse than, than I do, but that will be the 30th anniversary. Uh, so that means General Horner will be, uh, I think he'll be, what, 45 when this when we're dedicated? Uh, <laughs> no, you will be. No, you will be. But, yeah, yeah. Veterans Day of 2021 is what our goal. And I just wanted to invite all of you, you know, to join us. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your interest. But I just want to ask you to take it a step further. Uh, I would humbly ask for your help and your support in this. It took a coalition effort back in 1990 and 1991 to do the right thing. And I'm asking you all to be a part of our coalition as we move forward and we build and construct this very important landmark and piece of history here in the, in the United States Capitol. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to entertain any questions if anybody has any. Uh, Dr. Anthony, unless I'm breaking protocol here, or were you the... No, no I think I have a segue, uh, a little more context. Than okay. And I have a bunch of... I'll get, I'll get the heck out of the way. He's got a lot more range than I do. Having rank is one thing, being rank is another. <laughs> Text to underscore and italicize, neonize, capitalize uh, what Scott Stump and General Horner have, have addressed in John Witherspoon, too, along with Ambassador Kadeem. Uh, throughout the Desert Shield uh, uh, component of this uh, drama, this uh, uh, epical event in uh, American history, world history, regional history, there. People were in the United States uh, limited in their knowledge and their awareness and appreciation of what Kuwait was, was doing and had been doing and why it was worth fighting for. Most reduced it to oil um, and it was hard to get people to agree or even uh, consider that there were additional reasons other than oil. Of course oil uh, was essential and it uh, came through in the slides that you saw early in terms of what was at stake. I mean, having to do with energy. Energy drives the economies of, uh, of all countries. Uh, rich, poor, new, old, small, large, medium-sized, and everything in between. Uh, people uh, viewed uh, Kuwait as, as a gas station, uh, not a country, uh, as a mountain of money. Uh, not inhabited by people who were the heirs, the legatees of an extraordinarily rich culture and civilization that has enriched uh, other cultures, other civilizations, and contributed much to humanity. Uh, more than oil, uh, at least the following were at stake, as Gustav made reference to the United Nations working. Yes, it did at that time. And uh, there were 12 relevant United Nations Security Council resolutions, uh, uh, unanimous, by the way, uh, laced with conviction and commitment to, to liberate Kuwait. But what's overlooked is that the Soviet Union voted with the United States on all 12 of those occasions. Uh, had there not been Mr. Gorbachev at the helm, it's questionable whether that would have occurred. There's a movie in town at the moment, by the way, called Meeting Gorbachev. Yeah. 
Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, you'll you'll love it. You'll see a side of the man uh, that did not come through in the media accounts and other reports of who he is, who he was, and how he's in his twilight years. Uh, it's well worth seeing, and this is a, a, a part of, of his life. Uh, but that was, some would say, a fluke, a fluke of fate. Uh, coincidence there, but my God, what a fluke, what a fate, what a, what a coincidence there. Uh, the Soviet Union, in its own ways, uh, was pivotal. Imagine had it vetoed uh, these uh, resolutions, would have played right into the hands of Saddam Hussein, who said, here come the white people again, they're the crusaders, they're not in love with their brown eyes, etc., they come to conquer, they come to uh, reap the rewards of, uh, uh, of their conquest. Uh, that would have played into his sales. Neither does anyone give credit to the League of Arab States. Uh, people have written its obituary uh, many, many times. Uh, but here in the geopolitical, geostrategic context, it was vital, not marginal, not crucial, but vital. There on August the 3rd, within 24 hours of the invasion, 12 of the uh, then 21 uh, members uh, voted to condemn uh, what Iraq had done and uh, demanded that uh, Iraq's troops reverse themselves and get back to Iraq. Uh, seven days later, August the 10th, they did what no other uh, group of Arab countries had ever, ever done before. That is, uh, the vote was the same, 12 to 9, uh, to uh, uh, demand, instruct that all Arab armies mobilize and deploy their forces to Saudi Arabia so that the uh, invasion would, would not expand. Uh, that was crucial. Uh, you had Syria involved, you had uh, 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 Egypt involved. Uh, I was on the first civilian plane into Kuwait uh, when it was liberated there, and uh, the Syrians and the Egyptians uh, were there, right alongside the American forces, the British, uh, the French, and many of the other armed forces of the coalition. Uh, so that part, too, is overlooked, but needs to be uh, appreciated. That also took the wind out of Saddam Hussein's sails, who thought that, my goodness, no Arab country would stand uh, with the coalition to evict Iraq uh, from uh, Kuwait, uh, with so many uh, Iraqis believing that Kuwait, if it's to exist at all, should exist only as the 19th province of Kuwait, that it should never uh, have been allowed to enter into the committee of independent uh, nations there. And generations of Iraqi school children uh, from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, throughout the 70s and 80s were schooled in this particular attitude, uh, which uh, uh, provided a strong foundation and support network for what uh, Saddam Hussein and his uh, forces did. People do not appreciate the following either that Kuwait uh, is the record holder for Arab countries in terms of philanthropic, official, institutional, charitable uh, giving. And starting in 1954, seven years before Kuwait was independent, it started giving foreign economic assistance to Doha, to Dubai, uh, and to Sharjah, and to Russell Kama, and other emirates that became the United Arab Emirates, uh, and to Bahrain as well, the ruling family of Kuwait and the ruling family of Bahrain. They're related, by the way, they're, they're close cousins out there. Uh, and this gives them another aspect of cohesiveness uh, that somehow escapes people's memory there. Uh, Kuwait, too, is the, um, the grandfather and the father of uh, sovereign wealth funds. 
You did not have that phrase, that concept, until Kuwait began. Again, seven years before independence there, with the Kuwait Investment Authority. Kuwait, at the time of the invasion and occupation, was providing foreign economic assistance to 88 countries. At the time, the United States had reduced its foreign economic assistance, 90% of it, to five countries, uh, with Israel uh, taking about a third of the total uh, as now. Uh, so Kuwait was more than a replacement of what the United States used to do when people began to ask the United States for foreign economic assistance after Vietnam. Uh, our standard response was, don't, uh, we don't have it. Sorry, we need congressional approval and that's not likely or possible or probable. Go ask the Kuwaitis. They will be the ones to help you. So it was not just a replacement. It was a, an additive, like a SDP in the foreign economic assistance reservoir. Uh, uh, that too was worth saving. Imagine had uh, Iraq uh, prevailed, that aspect of Kuwait would have been taken off the chessboard and the world would have been set back, not just uh, uh, Kuwait and, and, and those who were recipients of its uh, economic uh, largesse and material munificence. Now the number is at least up to 118 countries that receive uh, economic assistance from Kuwait, uh, from the Kuwait Fund for uh, Arab and Social uh, Economic uh, Development, headed by Abdul Latif al Hamid uh, from the beginning uh, throughout. And he was present at the uh, 10th anniversary where General Warner was president, uh, President Bush was president, uh, president and, uh, Norman Schwarzkopf was president, General Johnson, and, and quite a few others uh, were, were there to commemorate the 10th anniversary. Uh, Kuwait also has underpinned the British pound sterling uh, for more than half a century now. Indeed, one after the other, British Prime Minister has said that if Kuwait were to withdraw its funds from uh, the Bank of England, the, the pound would devalue overnight within 24 hours. And so with Great Britain being the historically closest American friend, ally, strategic partner, uh, Kuwait was vital to that too. And what people also forget is that when the Soviet Union imploded, and starting from uh, late 18, 1989, but extended through uh, the Kuwait crisis of 1991, uh, the Soviet Union cut off uh, all of the countries in Eastern Europe that had previously been part of the Soviet bloc in the Warsaw Pact, we're talking about Bulgaria, we're talking about Romania, talking about Czechoslovakia, talking about uh, Yugoslavia, talking about Poland, talking about Hungary. All of those were cut off uh, from Soviet gas and oil exports there. And their economies were uh, otherwise near the brink uh, of ruin uh, had there not been a replacement. We had no oil. We didn't have enough for ourselves. We were still a major of the world's leading oil importer uh, uh, from then and for a long time afterwards. There was no shale fracking at that time and uh, producing what the United States has become as an energy producer and even an energy uh, supporter. Who replaced the Soviet oil? One country, Kuwait. Okay. And so when the winds of democracy were blowing through Eastern and Central uh, Europe in Bulgaria, Romania, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, and elsewhere, it was Kuwait that came to their rescue, not the United States in that regard. And even where cash was needed in liquidation of assets uh, was the order of the day. 
and Kuwait wanted to cash in its investments in Daimler Benz in, uh, in Germany, uh, British Petroleum in, in the United Kingdom, uh, uh, Germany and, and, and Great Britain said, please don't do that. Uh, this will uh, have a profound effect on our stock market, our economic well-being, inflation, standard of living, cost of living, and the like. Please don't do that. And so Kuwait did not uh, do that. So yes, oil was uh, at issue, uh, but all these other facets and forces and factors and phenomena uh, were also uppermost amongst the strategic planners and decision makers. Uh, uh, facts regarding this that are a little well known uh, that Desert Shield and Desert Storm uh, helped to preserve. Uh, I went to Kuwait uh, 12 times uh, in the year after uh, its liberation, as I said, on the first civilian plane in there. Uh, AT&T, which Alex Shelby, who's here, uh, was instrumental in getting back up the, the switches in the communications, which was so vital coming out of Kuwait to, to the rest of the world when he was a, a, a big chief, uh, a chieftain at uh, AT&T. Now, thank you, Alex, for that extraordinary role. People are not aware that I am, uh, having been with your people on the ground in Kuwait. And, and part of the following, uh, that on so many uh, uh, embassy walls of the United States uh, worldwide, uh, there are signs saying, Yankee, go home. Uh, on the walls of the United States Embassy in Kuwait were painted, Yankee, please don't go home. There. And quite a few Kuwaiti parents named their children uh, Bush. Uh, there's, there's no P in Arabic, as you know, uh, but B is the closest thing there, like Ball Newman and PepsiCo and getting a PhD, etc. So uh, Bush was, was the closest thing to, to a P uh, there. Uh, these are additional facets, uh, and there are some questions uh, that people have presented to me uh, on cards in preparation for this event. And, and Scott, if you don't mind if I ask them to you, do you have a microphone in front of you yes, so that you can respond to them? Um, we tried to train our interns in, um, in the following, to ask questions that don't have a yes or no answer. Uh, <laughs> Open-ended. Uh, so we, we, we asked them to ask questions that start with the what needs to be done, who needs to do it, when does it need to be done, why does it need to be done, where will we be if we do it, where will we be if we don't do it, and sometimes even another W question, whether anything needs to be done, in other words, if it's not broken, we'll try to fix it. But the most vexing of all for policymakers is a how question. How question, you cannot answer that, yes or no, and it usually draws people out. So, uh, how are other coalition nations being represented? I'm going to ask two or three, and you can answer them in sequence if you want to, or ignore them. Um, one of the most important stated goals of the memorial is to promote education. Uh, how do you envision uh, this uh, being uh, pursued, uh, achieved, accomplished? Uh, can you elaborate? Uh, uh, thirdly, uh, how involved are the other members of the coalition in the construction of the memorial? Uh, how have they responded, if at all, uh, to uh, current or any future plans uh, for their involvement? These three questions, could you uh, handle them briefly? And I have three others, and I'll join them together too. 
Uh, I didn't realize I was going to do any uh, mental gymnastics remembering these questions. I'll, I'll, I'll do them in order. Okay. Education is uh, one. Uh, that right. And, and how the coalition well, is going to be, yes. going to be uh, recognized. We, you know, and, and again, we're not scholars. You know, these are average, everyday, you know, veterans. You know, we're not, um, you know, we, we always instinctively from the very beginning drew to those three aspects of you know remembering those that served, those that died, but it's not a place of mourning. Okay, that's the big differential. Okay, where you go to Vietnam, it's not an uplifting experience. Uh, but also being able to show that the relationship between the American public and the military was forever altered because of Desert Storm. Some people don't realize that. that I'm sorry, I'm getting just a tad bit off uh, course, but um, I think it's really important to mention that. That establishment or that relationship evolved and it changed. And I think people who are in uniform now, the young people, they take it for granted that you've always had people give up first class seats on airplanes to you. That wasn't happening in 1989. There was a, a holdover from the Vietnam syndrome, as President Bush referred to it. And he also said that that syndrome was buried in the sands uh, of the Middle East and it was forever changed. And it is absolutely true. Uh, and it even is that commonly used and very familiar phrase, thank you for your service. That was born of Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So even when I was in uh, in service, uh, Camp Pendleton, California, we had to go out in groups of three. You had to try and blend in when it's 1988 and everybody's hair is kind of long and yours is really you know high and tight like mine isn't today. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to blend in, but there were a lot of concerns that were left over from Vietnam and that basically changed overnight. Uh, and I know General Horner um, because he was a, he was a hero. I mean, let's just face it. I, I, I consider him a hero because as an infantryman, I know that what he did saved tens of thousands of lives, probably including mine. Because he'll tell you, yeah, Scott, you probably would have been done something dumb, and uh, you know, but uh, no, just kidding. Um, but you know, it was so vital, you know, what what he did. So I just wanted to put that point in there. What did he do? He was, he, he was the architect and the executor of the entire air campaign. All 43 days of it. All the logistics, so the bombing. Well, everybody, you can go in and, and live. Well, if, if, yes, sir. And, and, and if there wasn't a 43-day, and I'm going to just say it, it, it was as close to perfection as you can get. I mean, it really was. It was brilliantly executed, planned, and carried out. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, you, we wouldn't have what people refer to as the 100-hour war, that was so, you know, which is so erroneous if it weren't for this man. So I'll, I'll just, you know, tell you that. And I just, just uh, and he's gonna he's gonna clobber me when we get out of this room. He's gonna clobber me. Yeah, you know, he's gonna slap me around. But but we always, you know, we always knew that, that focusing on those aspects, but also at the heart of this is the coalition. This is a differentiation of, as I mentioned to you, all of the, the things about them coming together. So we felt that, uh, and as some of the coalition uh, folks in the embassies have told me, Scott, we want to have a sense of ownership with this. Okay, and some of, some of these, you know, they, they want to feel a part of it, and they are. So they will be recognized by name uh, in a creative way. And of course, I'm not an artist. I'm not a landscape artist or, or an architect. But they will be remembered on this memorial. So, uh, and, and Dr. Anthony had alluded to the former Soviet Union. Uh, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, who's now the Czech Republic today, as well as Hungary, they were all 
Uh, this is their first independent action after coming out from under the, uh, you know, the, the Soviet control. And this was not a layup. So when they signed on as a coalition member, nobody knew that this was going to go the way that it did, as I mentioned to you. you know, I, when I signed that will, and my mom was going to get 25, my parents were going to get 25 grand or whatever the heck it was then if I, if I bought the farm and didn't come home. Um, you know, I thought, hey, there's a good chance you know, we may not be coming up. That was our mindset. We were prepared for that. So it took a lot of courage for those coalition members to sign on. It took a tremendous amount of courage. Because if you took a, took a look at the uh, track record of the U.S. 15 years prior, it was a little bit spotty, wasn't it, General? I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't, it was, it was a little bit, you know, questionable. So that's how we, um, that's how we want to recognize a coalition. They, they, they belong on that, and we want visitors. You know, there are 20 million visitors plus to D.C. every year. Many of those from other countries. And with the location of this memorial, just by default, you're going to have millions of people that are going to see this every year. And my hope and my dream is that you'll have people from these other countries go and learn that story if they don't know it. And if they do know it, it'll reinforce that memory of what a special and important time this was in history. We just got to have three more questions for you. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, and as far as the education component, we, uh, of course, there is a, a degree of technology that's going to be employed with the memorial. This is not a museum. They keep telling me that. I understand that. I get that. You know, it's not going to be a data dump, but that we will utilize some technology for some on-site education. But we also are looking and, and we're, you know, discussing partnering from a, an educational component, component and outreach, you know, to the coalition countries, not just this country, but to make sure that, that, that there is a living educational component where we can go out uh, and educate young people in particular and remind those that are older. Uh, and then the last one was the um, the co coalition, uh, kind of what they're what they're saying to me. Well, I'm proud to report that it, it's it's ironic that um, Hungary was the first coalition contributor. Okay, that's a huge step for them. Uh, they believe in this, and the people of Hungary. You know, I go into their embassy, and there's holdovers from the Soviet era. The windows are a certain way so nobody can spy on them. I mean, it, it's fascinating. But they believe in this, and I have a number of other of, of the countries that, that, that want to be a part of it, and I'm confident, based on what they've told me, that they are going to be a part of it. Uh, you know, of course, you know, we welcome that, and I just think it just shows that unity and delivers that message that we're together once again, and we stand strong. So, okay, super. Yes, sir. Um, how all of this points out the distinctiveness and uniqueness of what this memorial is about, what this chapter and history uh, uh, represented there. Um, but let's hope that there are people in this room who will find inspiration in what Scott and General uh, Honor and John Witherspoon have had to make, as well as Ambassador Ganim in their comments there. And I don't consider this a one-off experience in, uh, in world history, American history, U.S. relations with the Arab world. Um, the example itself, there's, there's no monopoly on the method. Uh, there's no trademark on the technique, uh, there's no uh, patent on the process, and there's no copyright on the concept. Um, uh, this is in the marketplace of ideas and ideals and principles that young people and, and those not so young anymore, who are old enough and young enough to remember uh, what this represents and be accordingly inspired. And General Warner, I invite you to respond to this one first, and then, uh, Scott, you can wrap it up here. And uh, what aspects of Desert Storm 
I'm putting it on the spot, make it a crucial turning point in military history, geopolitical history, or geostrategic history. <laughs> you ask easy questions, you must be a professor. <laughs> I profess. <laughs> well, for the U.S. military, it really was a watershed event because it was the first war we fought under Goldwater Nichols. And the cooperation we had, myself, John Yosak from the Army, Walt Boomer, Stan Arthur from the Navy, Walt from the Marine Corps, uh, we all were extremely close-knit in our thinking and our work. Uh, and uh, obviously, Schwarzkopf was a great leader. He was very intelligent. Not known. Army generals are not known for celebrity <laughs> intelligence. And he was. And uh, so uh, we really, uh, it was a watershed for the U.S. military. It was more than a watershed event for the Gulf Cooperation Council members. Because uh, they entered it, this was the first kind of major modern war. They're, they're great warriors in their history, but not in use of modern technology and things like that anymore. And I sensed often uh, reluctance because of fear of failure. And quite frankly, they all performed magnificently. And I was so pleased. And it was easy for the airmen because we all speak English. And airmen don't really have much rank consciousness. Uh, whoever's leading the flight is the leader. And he may be a lieutenant, and you got a lieutenant colonel on the wing. So it was easy for the, air for, uh, for the airmen. Uh, and we all think alike and work alike. We're all obnoxious in the bar and things like that. <laughs> For the uh, Army guys, it was a sort of a struggle. Uh, how do you how do you integrate the Syrian right. forces in with uh, the 101st Airborne, things like that? And uh, it was because of uh, Prince Khaled, because of Swarskov, uh because of our direction from the various uh, Bush and uh, King Fahd worked a miracle in getting everybody together. And uh, so that was, uh, here you have very divergent cultures and languages, and it was very difficult. Uh, our French general, top French general, didn't speak any English. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Sir Peter de la Billier, from the, uh, at the top general for Britain, walked in the room, and the French general went up, and he said, sorry, mate, I don't, I don't speak a bloody word. <laughs>
present throughout uh, with the uh, Kuwait uh, Embassy and the cultural arm of uh, Kuwait. Uh, Kuwait's embassy held innumerable events that were social and cultural and led to the establishment of the Kuwait America Foundation, which still exists in uh, more than three dozen cities in America. Middle school children, not high school, not elementary, uh, participate in writing an essay every year, a page, page and a half, no more, double space, on what is called do the right thing, W-R-I-T-E, meaning right as well, R-I-G-H-T. Uh, they've all been affected by violence. Someone was killed in that family, shot, wounded in that family, or a close relative or neighbor or, or friend. And what they will do with their lives uh, to reduce uh, the uh, phenomenon of violence in uh, international relations and human affairs. Um, president Bush uh, was president, the president, as was General Horn, when uh, this was unveiled uh, in Kuwait and a dimity, well, a girl about 12 years old from Chicago uh, stood behind the podium and asked if people could see her. She was that, that small and, and short. And she read her essay about what violence had done to her life and uh, what she was vowing to do as she became an adult. Uh, there wasn't a dry eye in the audience, including uh, President Bush's there. Uh, so Kuwait has done an enormous amount of good work, goodwill, uh, to capture the educational component of this, uh, having to do with violence, and it's a mark of appreciation by the Kuwaiti people. It's all funded privately in Kuwait by the Kuwait Foundation for the Advancement of Science. And the Emir of Kuwait is the uh, honorary uh, chairman of that effort. Um, so, uh, public opinion regarding that. One more, last two questions. Yeah, I, I would think that, uh, I, I don't think there's a whole lot um, of negative of what we're talking about. If, if somebody finds or has a problem with the world essentially coming together, doing the right thing, um, Transforming the you know the military, I just I don't. I mean, if they got a problem with that, and I know that there maybe there are some people. I mean, I've learned that they're. Yeah, you know, I'm from Western North Carolina. I live up in the mountains, and I've learned that people here are a little different. Um, as a general rule, they think a little differently, and I you know, I see something that looks pretty clear, and they, you know, but I just can't imagine somebody would have a problem with this message that this is delivering. It's a positive message. Uh, again, it's not a, not a place of mourning. And we're hoping that these lessons uh, are going to be carried forward in the future generations. So I, I would really hope, and I'd be disappointed if public opinion uh, were anything other than positive and, and supportive. And I would hope that as a result of what we're doing, that uh, we'd have a whole lot more people get educated and realize this was important, and to learn that story if they don't know it. And as far as the additional memorials in other countries, I'm not aware of that, Doctor. Um, I don't... Um, Nobody has mentioned anything. I know there have been some initiatives across this country in some certain cities or states, uh, but nothing that was on the on this level. And you know, we we always tell people this is an international memorial. This isn't just, uh, and we've never looked at that you know at that way from the very beginning. This is an international memorial where people from around the world are going to appreciate. Even even countries that are not part of the we're not part of the coalition. There's a lesson to be learned here that I think will just make the world so much better if they would just heed the message and learn from it. So thank you, Doctor. There's a, a publication that uh, you're free to have, and we've left for you that, that uh, addresses some of the things that General Horner touched on, which 
uh, are overlooked, and that was the role of the Gulf Cooperation Council. Uh, it had as its Secretary General Abdullah Yaqub Bishara, uh, who had been buddies with George H.W. Bush when George H.W. Bush was America's ambassador to the United Nations. And Bashara was Kuwait's ambassador from 1971 to 1981. He was elected Secretary General of the GCC four terms, uh, a record thus far. The two were on first name basis. They could pick up the phone and, and George and, and Bella, et cetera. And uh, Bashara was, was instrumental, as was uh, Prince Khalid's uh, counterpart in the ruling family, Prince Saud al Faisal who, like his father, served as foreign minister for more than four decades. These were two very gifted people, and the Saudi Arabian ambassador here was Prince Banda bin Saud, Prince Banda bin Sultan bin Abdulaziz al Saud, who became the dean of the uh, diplomatic corps here. And a more dynamic, charismatic, uh, uh, fun-loving, funny, uh, but also statesman-like ambassador uh, few Arab countries have had, so he was on the scene. Uh, these were unsung heroes and heroines, uh, too, uh, on, on this, uh, and they're addressed on this one. This picture was taken day before yesterday, this guy there. And that there, uh, uh, more than 472 uh, oral uh, wells were put on fire, and no two were the same there. And uh, my goodness, you couldn't see in front of your hand uh, there are two feet uh, for uh, several weeks after the uh, liberation there. And the world consensus was this one man called Red Adair, uh, who was the world's best in terms of dealing with fires of oils. He said, oh, it'll take six to seven years to put it out. Uh, it took just several months. The Japanese and the Canadians competed with each other on this, as did Schlumberger and Boots and Coots. Uh, these are oil field uh, people, and uh, Brown and Root and Halliburton and uh, some of the others there. Uh, but it was a Hungarian pilot, former pilot of uh, an illusion uh, aircraft for the Soviet Union, and he said, Look, Get me one of those engines from those planes, if you can find one somewhere. Get me a scaffold, get me a ladder to get up on the sca scaffold, and give me the keys to the ignition, and I'll show you what can be done. So people thought he was nuts. Uh, he knew he wasn't nuts. They did this, uh, and he had the engine up there, and he tilted it, turned the ignition on, and all of a sudden, <coughs> it put out every uh, uh, oil fire there, and it went to the next room, put it out. Red Adair was uh, humiliated, I think, uh, there, and one hasn't heard about him from him since then. <laughs> but uh, you've got a great audience there. We've had a terrific uh, threesome up here to share their knowledge and understanding and information and insight and analysis and the implications of all of this for humanity, not just for the United States, not just for Kuwait, but for the world. Thank you all.